Well, good morning again. Uh, this afternoon, after we wrap things up here, Pastor Brian and Sarah and their three kids are going to uh, load up the minivan for a well-deserved vacation for uh, a couple weeks, and um, uh, and they're going to drive all the way to Chicago, maybe not all the day. And so for those of you who have ever traveled in a minivan with three small children, uh, pray for Brian and Sarah this afternoon. And, and, and for Charlie and, and Callum and Sonia as well, right? Please, he says, please. No, they're going to have a great time. Um, well, it's springtime, and uh, not only is it the temperature warming, uh, warming us, but we also see uh, visitors to our, our city, visitors to our area going out and about and enjoying uh, the warmer weather. And of course, um, there are crowds around all the beautiful monuments. You know, the monuments are fascinating. Not only are they visually beautiful, but most of them have inspirational messages etched into them. So, for example, one of my favorite little uh, sayings from the Jefferson Memorial is on uh, Thomas Jefferson's views on religious liberty. He writes, Almighty God hath created the mind free. All attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burthens our departure from the plan of the holy author of religion. No man shall be compelled to frequent or support religious worship or ministry or shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief. And many of our forebears in our faith tradition uh, fought for and worked for uh, religious freedom. And then, of course, you move over to the Lincoln Memorial and you see the words there of his second inaugural address, with malice toward none, with charity for all, he wrote after the Civil War, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Then you go over just a little bit more to the MLK Memorial, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and you read these incredible words, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And also the words darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So we see these words, we read these words, we read them throughout uh, uh, school and and history, we read them when we go to the monuments, they're powerful. But we know that they're only etchings in stone if they're not considered, taken, and applied to our lives. We can like the song of religious liberty, but unless we work for it, people won't be free to worship or to resist being compelled to worship. We can like the song of working for unity after a painful period of division, but unless we champion it and are willing to submit ourselves, our own struggles and biases, it will never happen. We may like the sound of light and love driving out darkness and hate, but if we don't become agents of light and love, if we don't apply these words, they won't be a reality in our own lives. Big ideas, powerful ideas, Good ideas, truth, becomes big, powerful, good, and true in our world when we listen and apply. Truth is truth, regardless of whether we apply it or not. But it becomes truth 
in our world around us in the way people behave and the way we behave when we apply it. Today we begin a series called Faith in Action that is based on the book of James. And James is a fascinating book in that it doesn't really highlight a major theological theme. Rather, it is a letter to the early church about how to take the words, the sacred words of the teachings of Jesus and apply them into our lives, to put our faith into action, to make the words come alive in the way that we live. And so in this series, we'll consider how faith impacts, for example, the trials that we face. There's a whole section that that deals with the challenge of not only hearing these words, but putting these words to action, being not hearers, but doers of the word. A challenge not to let favoritism slip into the life of the Christian or the church. Dealing with temptation and sin. That interesting relationship between faith and good works or simply the power of our words. Now, just a a few more items on James before we dig in and get started. More than likely, the author of James is James, the little brother of Jesus. You know, I often imagine what it must have been like to grow up with Jesus and to be one of his little brothers. Mark tells us that Jesus had four brothers and two sisters. And I can just imagine the little brothers doing what little brothers often do. They can make mischief. They can at times be really annoying. And in many cases, though, little brothers have a way of looking up to big brothers. We know it would have been really easy to look up to Jesus. I'm sure he set the bar really high. And one thing you can hear when, when you listen to the words of James, and I encourage you to read it you know, cover to cover. It's, it's not that long of a letter you hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. It makes me wonder even more about the nature of Mary and Joseph, that Jesus articulated these promises this way and and these values this way, and that James picks it up and does the same. Many of the disciples, and, and later Paul, went all over the world preaching the gospel and establishing churches, but James stayed put. And as one scholar said, he was praying and teaching and trusting that the God who had raised his beloved brother from the dead would complete what he had done. And the letter to James serves as an encouragement, not only to Christians around the world then as they face persecution, but encouragement to us today in the way that we apply our faith. With that said, let's dig in and begin with chapter 1, verse 1. It reads like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, 
But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This is the Word of God for the people of God. James gives us practical advice about how to live an unwavering faith in two really key areas of life. And the first one is trials, trials, and more trials. James said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, how, we, how can we consider a trial a joyful occasion? Hang on to that question for a moment. Let's do a, a quick FAQ on the concept of trials. First of all, what is a trial? A simple definition simply would be, trials are challenges we endure in life that test our faith, hope, love, and more. And James tells us there's many kinds of trials. What kinds of trials are there? Well, when he was writing this, and today as well, actual persecution for being a Christian. There's the temptation to sin, which we'll get into later in the book. Sickness and emotional pain, like grief, that's a trial we face in life. Relational struggles, financial struggles, and I'll bet you could even add to that list and we can simply say other, other hardships, other challenges that test our faith. Now, the big question that is most often asked when considering this subject of trials is why does God allow us to experience trials? God allows us to experience trials, James says, so that our faith will be strengthened and able to withstand even greater challenges. And and this gets to the core. It gets to the very core of how we even consider this concept of faith, faith that we put into action. Let me just peel another layer of the onion just, just for a minute by drawing a contrast to two perceptions of faith and what faith is supposed to do in our lives. There is the concept of a, a comforting faith. A comforting faith holds on to the promises of Jesus to be our good shepherd, our great physician, our friend, our redeemer, our hope, the provider of our abundant and eternal life. And the Bible informs this view of faith. The Bible tells us every single one of those things about our faith. The Bible tells us that Jesus gives us all of these and promises forgiveness and hope and life and eternal life and the like. The challenge with this perception of faith is not that the details are wrong. It is just an incomplete vision of faith. Yet if we're not careful, we can limit our definition of faith to a a comforting faith. Faith in this way, if we're not careful, can become a a self-serving faith. Almost like Jesus is my valet. Jesus is here to make things better when they go wrong, and Jesus is here to connect me with resources I don't yet have. The second, and I would argue, complete perception is that of a a missional faith. The Christian is intended by God to make an impact in this world. The Christian is intended by God to suit up and battle the fierce realities of evil, and injustice, and racism, and poverty, and all sorts of oppression, and hatred. 
N.T. Wright wrote, those who follow Jesus the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They're supposed to count, to make a difference in our world. We need to become strong to face the challenge. Absolutely, our faith gives us comfort. And it is intended to give us all those wonderful spiritual graces that come, that we, that we put in that sort of comforting category. And it is intended to give us a spiritual workout so that we can become stronger witnesses and representatives of Jesus so that we can become his agents of goodness and truth in the world around us. Let me give you an analogy. The FBI, CIA, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and even the Coast Guard, and all other law enforcement military agencies would not dream of recruiting women and men to protect and defend without first putting them through the paces and testing their mettle to make them strong so that they can defend us. They wouldn't dream of recruiting them and saying, okay, just go. My goodness, I was a musician in the army. They made me go to basic and learn how to shoot and throw a grenade. They didn't make me shoot and throw a grenade. That would have been bad for our country. But they at least trained me a little bit. So God allows us, allows us to experience trials, to refine and strengthen our faith. God's comforting graces give us respite and encouragement, refreshment and companionship, and his presence for the journey. See it this way. Christians are engaged in the most important mission in the world. Just as we would not want an untested military defending us, God will allow us to experience trials and even draw some trials in our lives to prepare and strengthen us for the mission to which he has called us. This is why as Christians we can count it pure joy when we face trials. No, it does not mean we put on the way back machine of 70s disco music and start dancing. No, that would be a disconnect from reality. Christian joy, properly defined, is simply joy is a deep gladness that, that no matter what is going on in my life, all will be well with Jesus. It's a deep gladness and settledness that no matter what is going on, all will be well with Jesus. Responding to a trial with joy, James tells us, leads to perseverance, which leads to a stronger faith. Responding to a trial with panic can lead to an even bigger crisis. It can compound the trial and weaken us in the faith. So how do we experience, how do we move to a place of joy when we're experiencing a trial? I thought you may have thought I'd forgotten that question. James says we ask for wisdom. We ask God. This is not of ourselves that we can say, here's a trial, I'm going to count it a joy. No, we need to ask for God's help and God's wisdom here. James 1.5 again, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God will give us what we need to sustain our journey. God will come to us and give generously when we are not sure how to handle a trial with grace and in such a way that honors his will and way. God will give us wisdom to see the right path and the way of the world as the wrong path. So for example, God will give us wisdom to see that the world outside of God's will offers a counterfeit type 
of joy. God will give us the wisdom to be able to see that. Money, power, position, status, leisure, these are all pathways that lead to a pseudo-joy, a temporary happiness. But when you trust in those things, when you stake your joy on those things, it's like a sugar high. You'll get ramped up for a bit. It'll feel good for a bit, maybe days, months, even years, but sooner or later, a crash is coming. How many of you have ever been on a great vacation And then all of a sudden, about a day or two before you go on vacation, you start feeling the blues and a little bit melancholy because you know you've got to go back to the, how many times have you said, I need to go back to the real world now? Maybe in Pastor Brian's case, he'll be ready to come home and get out of the minivan. Who knows? But God gives us wisdom to know his ways and the difference between temporary joy and lasting joy. Joy. God will give us the wisdom and grace to endure in the midst of a trial so that we don't become bitter, busted, or broken. Notice how James says we should ask. When we ask, we ask for wisdom with the confidence that God will give us the wisdom and not doubt. If we doubt, we're like the waves that are tossed just one way or the other. You know, when you look at the waves in a body of water, They come up, and it's almost like they're an entity of themselves, but they're actually not. They're simply gathered up by the currents and by the winds. The water of a wave simply goes where the wind and the current wants it to go. Our aim in the Christian life is to not be a wave and just to blow and go wherever trials and struggles may take us. Maybe we could say our goal in the Christian life is to be an unwave or simply unwavering in our faith. It is not to let the outside forces of a trial cause our mind and heart to blow one way and the other. To God, we ask for wisdom to have a single-minded faith that indeed God will give it and God will work together in all the things in our lives to bring about His good in our life, His good which is ultimately making us to be more and more like Jesus. So incredible wisdom from James here on how to endure and how to face trials. And so a gentle question this morning might be for you, how would you describe your faith? Would you describe it more as a comforting faith or a missional faith? And let me just say, you can put it on a continuum, and maybe there's times when you lean this way and time you lean that way. But let me just say, if you see faith as more of a comforting faith, then what I would suggest is there may be times when trials will really rock your boat. If you see it as a missional faith, you may be more predisposed to seeing a trial as something that strengthens you for what God has for you in the future. Now, I'm going to lean into the next area just a little bit because James circles back around a couple times on this concept of material wealth or the lack of. Our text concludes with the word about wealth and poverty. James says the poor should take pride in their low position and the wealthy should be humbled. The text we translated was actually humiliated, but humbled because wealth is fleeting. Now remember, this is James, right? The younger brother of Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. There are times when actual material poverty 
James is saying here, enables you to see your need for God much easier than someone who has wealth. Let me say that again. There are times when material poverty actually enables you to see your need for God more than those who have wealth. Wealth can deceive and blind someone to believe that they are self-sufficient and that they really don't have a need for God. There's nothing that shapes and, and clarifies a thirst for God more than wondering where the next meal is going to come from is another way to say it. Or maybe a difficult life situation, like a difficult surgery coming up. It sharpens the mind. At the end of the day, the poor spirit will be exalted. Those who are self-sufficient, James says, will be humbled. Those who see no need for God. Now, you can read verses 9 through 11 and start to question, what in the world does this have to do with trials? Is James just sort of changing subjects here really quickly? Not quite. Listen to this from one scholar. The humble should rejoice, one, because their poverty provides an area for their faith to be tested and thus for endurance to grow, and two, they will be exalted just as the prophets and Jesus had promised. The wealthy should glory in being humbled not only because riches are fleeting, but they are an encumbrance. Trials will either relieve him of this encumbrance or force a shock of clarity. Trials will either relieve the wealthy, right, of the encumbrance of wealth or force a shock of clarity. Trials, if properly understood through the gift of God's wisdom, will grant a new perspective in which wealth can be seen for what it is. When James says the rich will fade away, like dried up flowers, he means those who rely on their wealth for their security rather than relying on God. Again, Jesus, the older brother of James, our Lord, the Son of God, said you can't serve both God and money. Now, by most standards, most of us would be considered wealthy today. The challenge for all of us, regardless of net worth, is not to give our heart away to money. The Christian that has her material needs met must do battle with this. A source of temptation and sin for the wealthy Christian is to allow the heart to be encumbered by wealth. A source of temptation for those who struggle with poverty is to allow the wealth of others to become a point of envy and covetousness. Money, bling and things, has to be seen from God's point of view. At the end of the day, wealth or lack of forces us to consider our source of trust. God and his graces or the things of this world, money, power, and everything else that money can buy. The old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and this is the key line. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. The things of this earth will go strangely dim. They won't look as shiny in the light of his glory and grace. What a beautiful, beautiful word. It's a gentle question. Have you put your wealth in God's perspective? 
Have you allowed God's view of your wealth to shape your view of wealth? Well, may God grant us an unwavering faith in the face of trials and the way that we consider the things of this earth. Let the trials and the bling and things grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you do not leave us without resources on what we need, Lord, to be faithful to you. What we need to apply faith in our everyday lives. And so God, I lift up with gratitude this book of James and the wisdom that it offers us. Now I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us all that we need to submit our lives to your word, to live it out, to make it come alive in us. And Lord, by your grace and by your power and by the work of your Holy Spirit, to make it come alive in our world around us. Thank you for giving us all that we need to endure the trials that we face in life. Thank you for giving us all we need to see and to put our trust in you in light of your glory and in light of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.